The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at TNTradio.live. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. And welcome back to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Well, my next guest this hour is Michael McCarthy. Michael is both an investigative journalist and travel writer. While anyone can hop on a plane and fly anywhere in the world for work or a holiday, Michael combines the two using his frequent press trips as research for hundreds of stories of his travels to nearly 50 countries. While ostensibly reporting about places to stay, where to go and what to do on vacation, he also keeps his eye out for hidden clues about ways that the Chinese Communist Party is secretly infiltrating Western democracies in order to take over the world. His book is called Follow the Money, How China Brought, or Bought the World, I should say. Michael McCarthy, welcome to Weekends. Oh, thank you very much, Jason. It's uh, nice to be here and talk with you, and especially with somebody who uh, is interested in this topic. Well, I think it's it's the biggest topic in the world is all about power, and we're living in a world at the moment that kind of has this unipolar US superpower, but now we're witnessing something changing in the background, this multipolar world. We've seen it through the idea of the creation of these BRICS group of nations that started, of course, with Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And of course, China has been and playing a very, very long game in terms of changing the way Way that the power structures work and your book shines the light on the use of following the money and this is a very very deep dark story it is told almost every day in the mainstream news one way or another whether we're looking at joe biden's influences or other influences around the world and how it is that people are controlled by the power of money particularly when it comes to politics no elected official likes to go out on the campaign trail and actually have to campaign. No no politician likes to go out and have to raise money. So when that sort of comes to you, it's very easy to see why people can become compromised thinking that they're still doing the right thing. But what we don't know, of course, is what other nations may well have in, in store with their plans. And this is where your work just, just rises up and comes to the fore. So I was hoping to talk to you about that today, obviously about the book. But where I wanted to start, Michael, if you don't mind, is I want to ask you how you felt on the 29th of November when we found out that Henry Kissinger at 100 years of age had passed away. The reason I asked that is that his name is all over the development of China in the modern era. So how did that event take you back? <laughs> no one's ever asked me that before. It's um, a great question. Actually, I'm going to hold up my book for a second here. Right on the back page, it says, Political satire became obsolete when Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> a songwriter wrote that. Um, yeah, a few people I can think of have done more damage to the global um, political situation than Henry Kissinger. And the fact that he was <laughs> awarded the Nobel Peace Prize is um, absolutely absurd. Um, I don't think a, a lot of people really <clears throat> know the background of Henry Kissinger and what he's done and the damage that he's done. But if you had the opposite of a, a Nobel Prize for bad behavior, certainly Mr. Kissinger would be at the top of the list. Um, anywhere from the carpet bombing of Cambodia, secret, illegal, no one knew, 
bombs still going off in Cambodia all these many years later, people having their legs blown off, um, backing Argentinian junta who got rid of opposition by throwing them out of helicopters, 30,000 young people murdered, uh, staging a coup in, in Chile and murdering uh, the president, uh, backing uh, the wrong people in Iran. Uh, and, and today, you know, Iran is now the major superpower in the Middle East. It could go on and on and on and on. But the damage that he did to America by backing up Richard Nixon is, is damage that people don't really know what he did and um, how much damage it still manages to do today. This is the other uh, part of it that I found fascinating to just witness how Kissinger's death was played out in the mainstream media. Of course, there were those on both sides of politics trying to sing his praises, as many obviously would because there's a hierarchy in power. But what I found interesting was just how quickly that those so-called tributes dissipated and then there was the real feeling that came through. I'm myself aware of uh, some, if not all, of the, uh, the, the, the topics that we're going to talk about today. Just felt uh, a sense of, well, first thing I thought was, well, goodness me, we've finally proven that nobody is immortal because the man looked about the most unhealthiest I've ever seen. How he lived to 100 just defies logic. But there was no feeling of joy, the fact that he was gone. It was more of just an emptiness, just feel like, feeling like we never really understood the real truth behind the story. So whilst we will be talking about Kissinger in part in today and trying to work out how this pieces together and how it is that so many clandestine efforts are made with global governments that go against what the people know, what they understand. And that's part of this whole story. It's It, it plays like a real-life international spy thriller, but it's all very, very real. And, Michael, this is part of what you did as being a travel writer. It sounds to me like you must have had the most beautiful job in the world to travel, to write, to talk about intrigue. Do you find it confronting? Do you find it scary in any way? Is there a level of fear or is it just simply a great big adventure when you're out there writing and researching for your work that you do? Well, if you watch TV and read newspapers, it's always um, I'm going to retire and, and travel the world. <laughs> That's the, the, the thing when you turn 65 and you get a pension. It's, oh, we're going to take a cruise and we're going to do all this stuff. Well, I've been traveling my entire life. And I've been an investigative journalist for a long period of time. Uh, I managed to put together a way that I could travel the world to, for free and uh, actually to get paid for it uh, because there are no people like me left, which is to say investigative journalists who have the backing from a newspaper to travel the world and to stick his nose in deeply, bring out your shovel and dig deep and find out what's really going on. And that is a huge um, privilege. But I planned this an awful long time ago. Uh, so I was able to secure uh, press trips and, and invitations from governments all around the world because of the enormous number of my articles that appeared in North American newspapers. Uh, but going back to you know Kissinger, uh, everything I write you know, is about the truth as, as I find it being on the ground there, on the ground. And... Uh, it's a, it's a dreadful shame that we honor people like Henry Kissinger when there are other people that we should be looking at instead. 
Yeah, very good point, isn't it? And it shows us how much power has become obscured from the the service that it's meant to provide for the people in building a, a better world. It just seems like we're so far removed now. We're almost at war with our governments on a daily basis. I mean, do they even pay attention to what they're meant to do is to serve the people? Instead, it seems to be all about government serving its own interests, which is quite frightening. Now, if we go back in this story, and we can go a little bit way back, in fact, to Eli Yale, Yale University, the home to a small secret society called Skull and Bones. It sounds like a Hollywood movie with um, uh, Brendan Fraser or something like that, but it's a lot more, isn't it? Uh, this is something that's very, very uh, obscure, but it's the, the fact that it's able to accumulate 15 names a year and become so powerful, US presidents, etc., is the beginning of where this story starts from. Can you tell us a bit more about Skull and Bones and its connections and how it seems to rise up and move us towards this China taking over the world? Well, in the book, I, I never use the phrase conspiracy uh, because you have to be able to prove it and, and attribute the quotes and inserts, you know, all that. Uh, but uh, Anyone in North America today would be thrilled to be accepted into Yale or Harvard or these Northeastern universities with these incredible reputations. But Eli Yale was a very bad person. And um, he founded Yale University under his name to greenwash his reputation. He was heavily involved with the slave trade. He was a major drug dealer. And um, he was in the opium trade and made a fortune from it. And going back to the founding of Yale University, 1850s, um, there's always been a secret society within Yale called Skull and Bones. It was restricted only to the richest of the rich, uh, white male Protestant, um, 15 people a year, no one else in, uh, allowed or involved with it. But when you do, when you stumble across Skull and Bones and do deep research, it's all there online. Um, these people have done a tremendous amount of damage over the years. Um, I use the word personally treason, that they have been working and dealing secretly, secretly with the enemy, with the opposition for a long period of time. And when you look at the names of Skull and Bones, and they're all in my book, you know, Follow the Money, you know, these filthy rich people who have stabbed their own country in the back by dealing with the the enemy it's i call it treason you know the bush family empire in british or in, in north america in, in in you know george bush and all of them they made their money by um supporting adolf hitler and the nazis building armament factories in the 1930s and they were charged with dealing with the enemy and they somehow got off with it this is what happens when you have immense amounts of money but the bushes and all of the people named in this book they're all skull and bones people and they have been dealing with the enemy for a long period of time, including coming up with all of the ideas for Chinese Communist Party to get rich. The Chinese Communist Party couldn't run a lemonade stand. They don't know anything about business. It is American powerful interests who invested all of the money, created all of the plans for the gulags and the factory, um, slave labor factories in China. So between the two of them, you know, they have made vast fortunes. We have made the Chinese Communist Party fabulously rich. And they're spending all of that money on armaments. They're going to start World War III. Thank you very much. And people from 
North America, these business people going back quite some time, not just Skull and Bones, but others have been very, very happy to deal with the enemy. And in, in the past, up until a certain time, they have all gone to jail for doing it. And yet this is the change, isn't it, that we don't see any form of justice, we don't really see any form of investigation, but strangely, the same agencies' names come up again and again. And what I'm referring to, of course, is the connection between Yale, who started a series of divinity schools in China, that you uh, write that were actually fronts for goodness me, who else but the CIA uh, and their prized pupil, you say, is, uh, was Mao Zedong. Can you explain a bit more about how that came together? Yeah, well, Yale opened up a bunch of schools in China that were supposedly all about Christian, you know, development or whatever. And it was just a front for the CIA to um, operate within China to maintain and make sure that the opium factories stayed in business because Dr. Sun Yat-sen, the founder of modern China, was determined to modernize China. And uh, the CIA said, no, no, we're extremely happy with the profits that are coming out of the opium uh, trade. So how did Mao come out of nowhere? Well, Yale Divinity School nurtured him and brought him along and funded him and made sure that he was the victor and that um, the opium trade stayed and uh, to this day, I mean, how many movies have there been about the CIA and books about their treason and the way that they, they've got away with bloody murder? I mean, the CIA is basically a de facto American foreign affairs department. They, they operate under the radar. They do whatever they want. And the American public doesn't have any say in, in the CIA. And actually, to a certain extent, neither does the White House. This is the most frightening part, isn't it? Because when the spy agencies take over or are immune to their own rules set by their own government, then you can do pretty much whatever you want to do. I, I liken it back historically to the uh, the taking of JFK through the assassination. There was at the time when I feel like it was <clears throat> the most logical point where the CIA took over. Of course, we had uh, George uh, George H. W. Bush become the director of the CIA in 1977 and became uh, vice president to Reagan in 1981. So the claims that he didn't know where he was the day JFK was murdered some 14 years before he became the director of the CIA is pretty hard to believe. But of course, it's the Bushes whose names are all over this already starting with skull and bones and the uh, working together with uh, Nazis to develop weapons, etc. But this story goes uh, much further, doesn't it? Because now we're into China. And the CIA realizes that there's a whole lot of money being made in the opium trade. And of course, this is where we learn about Air America and we learn about the, the, the transporting of drugs. And this is how the CIA, it seems, is able to fund and be so powerful, again, if we follow the money, Michael. It's all about money, whether it's the CIA or anybody else, giant corporations or anything else. For instance, you talk about um, the past, but let's talk about the present in terms of who is profiting from this relationship between the Communist Party of China and North America. Well, um, as my book says, since the 1970s, well, Mao passed away in 78 and Deng Xiaoping took over and allowed market reforms, but it was nothing to do with the Communist Party. It was 100% American corporations who said, look, we can lower our labor costs here. And uh, as data shows now, I mean, these days, 
since the late 70s when America started investing in China, uh, blue collar workers in America have, their income has, has dropped 10% and 30 million jobs went to America or pardon me, to China. So they used to call it um, outsourcing or offshoring. It's now you know, uh, the friendly term of globalization. Well, I think the Chinese are very, very happy to get 30 million jobs and uh, and and to make uh, you know the the money from it, but the corporate people who designed this whole plan and they weren't communists, I've seen their uh, income go up as much as nine hundred percent. The average American corporate executive makes sixteen million dollars a year. It used to be that your boss made a hundred times as much as you. Now they're making a thousand times. And what have they done? They've shipped your job overseas to slave labor camps. You know, I'm wearing a pair of jeans talking to you right now. Where did they come from? You know, they weren't made here. So all, everything that's made in China, which in North America is all made in China, means that we're sending them, the Western world, are sending them all of our money. Okay, fine. But what are they doing with it? Well, they've now caught up to the Americans in terms of uh, military purchases. They're building a vast military network all over the South China Seas, all over the world. They're investing in countries all around the world, buying real estate. My God, what are we talking about here? Trillions of dollars. Well, where did that money came from? It came from us. Because we seem to have lost, you know, our purpose in life of, you know, having a good job and buying a house and getting ahead. It's not possible anymore. The rich have become so rich that no one else can afford to buy anything. So the rest of us are looking and scrambling at all, looking for satisfaction in the discount aisle of Walmart. You know, while the people who set up this whole plan are so stinking rich that they've all got private jets, houses on golf courses all around the world, and they're laughing their heads off because people don't know this, what I'm talking about in my book. My publisher once said to me, you know what sells? Secrets. Word of mouth. People read something, they find out it's true, and they say to other people, did you know? So when people read this book, they go, I can't believe this, but everything in the book has got an attribution. You can look it up online. It's real. It's a fact. You know, these things happened and they're still happening. And you're getting screwed silly because here in where I live in Vancouver, there's 5,000 people a day in the middle of a snowstorm sleeping on the streets because no one can afford to rent anything. Mm -hmm. And in my trip to Sydney in, in Australia, I was shocked to find the same thing. It's everywhere. The Chinese own the world. It's a very, very good point, isn't it? The cost of living uh, crisis around the West, around the world, is absolutely uh, devastating for so many people with no real answers in sight. Now, we are with author Michael McCarthy. We're going to take a break and be back with more here on TNT. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> 
Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News, today's Talk, News Talk, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. And my guest this hour is Michael McCarthy, author of the book, Follow the Money, How China Bought the World. Michael, it is a wonderful book and it's an easy read and it reads more like a thriller than uh, a book you might have to read as a textbook uh, if you are studying something. And that's part of the fun of the writing, being able to be both a travel writer and an investigative journalist. You certainly have a taste for being able to entertain as you go. Can you just show us the book cover again? So if people want to uh, purchase it, they'll know what they're looking for. There it is. Let me try that. There we go. Isn't that a lovely color or a lovely cover? It's, um, I have to admit, I designed it myself. <laughs> Beautiful. Well done. Tell me, in your work, is this, uh, when you decide to write a book like this, is it something that you say, I'm going to do, or is it something you realize that you've already got a lot of information and that you can start building upon what you have? Uh, or do you say, okay, I'm going to write a book and then I start? In the last year or two, there was two major bestsellers here in Canada uh, about this particular topic, um, Claws of the Panda, referring to the Communist Party, and the other one, Willful Blindness, explaining how the Canadian government took, you know, took a total, didn't even, didn't want to know about all the money laundering and all of what's going on. You know, the cost of living in Vancouver has quadrupled, you know, so they turned a blind eye to it. But in my book, what I thought was these are local Books. This is this is for Vancouver, 
uh, this book is global. And there are very few people who've ever had the opportunity to do what I've done, which is go to all these countries and stick my nose in deeply. Um, yeah, it's fun traveling the world, but it's far more interesting looking for meaning. And I, I think that this, call me biased, but I think this is the most important book in the world today because none of this stuff, and we're talking hundreds of secrets that are all true. No one's going to contest them now that the book is out, but people don't know this stuff. They don't really understand what has happened to them, but everywhere you go, I read the newspaper and every day is stories about children going to school with no food, no clothes. Uh, the, you know, this has affected the whole planet. Inflation is, is not happening to Canada. It's happening to the world. Why? Well, how did this come from? Where did it come from? Well, read the book. I'll tell you that certain people within our societies are getting stinking rich by playing us for fools. And you really need to read this type of information, but it's not in newspapers. They don't have any money. They don't have any reporters. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because once you were an investigative journalist working for a newspaper, and then one day you find out that there's just no budget anymore for these global correspondents. So the newspapers are, are no longer interested because of a simply a dollars and cents economic rationalist approach, but they do themselves a disservice completely, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's a, an old joke that the only reason there's a travel section, you know, the stories is to keep the ads apart. And a lot of newspapers don't even have travel sections anymore because they don't have any ads for it. It's yeah. all gone, you know, online. But I'm unique in the fact that I have been a very serious investigative journalist with several hundred cover stories in, I don't know how many newspapers and magazines, uh, that on the side was doing these travels. And when you read my travel stories, they're tourism. Mm. You, know, you know, where to go, what to do, because you won't get published unless you talk about Disneyland and all that kind of rubbish. But while I was there, uh, I said, well, I, I'm going to stick my nose into it. Like, uh, for instance, uh, Sydney. I mean, there's a long distance between Canada and, and Australia. But when I went down there, I thought, oh, I love Australians. So there are a lot of Australians in Vancouver. No worries, mate. You know, happy yeah. people. Great. I love Australians. But I didn't know till I got there and met a friend. The press trip started next week, so I spent a week with my friend. And he was making a lot of money. And his wife, they were well off. And we couldn't afford to, to go out for dinner. Uh, what the heck is going on here? I mean, it's not just Vancouver. It's Australia. And it's Los Angeles. And it's California. And it's London. And it's Dubai. And it's Taiwan. And it's around the world. Why? I can stick my nose in here and find out what's going on. I'm so glad that you brought it up, uh, that this cost of living pain is shared all around the world, because it's kind of like uh, in the past, we've been told that if there's a reason why you can't afford something, there's something wrong with you. But then you think about it and you think, well, hang on a second, why can't we acknowledge that maybe the system is broken? Uh, and, and that's exactly where we're coming here. But I, I like the fact that you're able to point out that um, the uh, executive salaries are not just 100 times now the average worker, but 1,000 times in certain situations. 
And this great divide can only be so wide that the people at the very top who are rolling around in, um, you know, in barrels full of, uh, uh, of money, if you will, and the ability to, you know, pay you know, tens of million dollars, millions of dollars for homes, look at the rest of the people thinking, oh, these poor sods, they can't, not only can they not afford to buy any property, even a shoebox to live in, they can't even pay their rent anymore. And therefore, oh, well, seriously, something wrong with the, with the general people. And there may be, well, too many of us, which can be a, a narrative that could be thrown around when you look at climate change and you look at the WHO threatening that there are diseases <clears throat> coming everywhere and uh, the climate is killing us all. And it's almost like they don't want us and they're trying to do our best or their best to tell us that uh, we haven't got a hope, but uh, still to follow them on. And so it's, 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 it's a frustrating turn of events when you feel like that the people in power who are enriching themselves instead of servicing others, we arrive at this situation where we go, well, who do we trust here? Do we just rip the whole system down? Do we look for a culprit, whether it be China? But it seems that it's one thing for China to go out and uh, and spend this money to buy the world, but it's another for the people around the world in power to take said money and go down and therefore become part of a regime that just affects the people. And it's us, the people that are paying the price, as we said, through inflationary pressures. I, I want to move to a, a different section that was mentioned in the foreword in your book, where the publisher and, uh, and, and, and his father was a CIA bureau chief in Asia, who claims that fentanyl is the CCP's way of getting revenge for the opium wars of the of 1850, which the British won and acquired Hong Kong and other settlements in the process. This is a, a fantastic claim and it makes a whole lot of sense. How did you take it when you first uh, saw that information? Did it, did it join a, a lot more dots together to explain why smiling faces are one thing, but there is always a hidden agenda where one puts one's country before anyone else's first, Michael. We were hindered in the West by what I would call the constant electioneering. It just never seems to end. The Communist Party in China has the luxury of total power and can plan 50 years ahead. So they planned long ago, 50 years ago, for their soft power program. And they've been able to infiltrate countries, uh, you know, all around the world. Uh, but we operate on a different uh, time structure here. And uh, I think we have to understand that um, fentanyl, as my publisher said, is, is a revenge on part of the Chinese people from a hundred and some odd years ago. This is a really important story, so I'm gonna tell it in its mm. full. Um, the British Industrial Revolution started in about 1830 when James Watt perfected and patented the steam engine. And uh, a lot of other people have been working on it, but he got the credit. And all of these factories started up and the British Industrial Revolution made Britain fabulously wealthy. And they had this wonderful Navy that they've been building up for years and the British East India Company, which was doing business uh, around the world. And uh, the result was like, modern China has a serious problem with air pollution. I mean, you can't walk across the street, you can't see across the street, it's so filthy, and millions of people are dying from lung cancer. But what happened during the British Industrial Revolution was that the waterways got polluted to the point where you couldn't drink it. So um, people at large turned to beer, mead and beer uh, at the time, and only rich kids went to school. So even young children were working in factories and drinking beer and the entire country became alcoholic. People were falling into the factories and the gears and, and the productivity, productivity was being impacted. So the TOFs, the people who owned all the property said, we, we have a problem here, we, we need to do something. 
and they uh, hired a spy, of, uh, a mercenary named Robert Fortune, a Scottish mercenary, who donned a disguise and went into the Wuxiang Hills of China. Uh, foreigners were not allowed in China at the time, pain of execution, immediate execution, shot on spot. But he got in there and he found out about this strange beverage called chai, tea. And he brought it back, this story, and the British started buying tea in huge amounts. They fell in love with tea. They're still in love with tea. Mm. And they spent so much money because the Chinese would only accept silver and gold. They wouldn't trade, no barter, nothing else. That Great Britain and the European Euro Union, uh, European countries at the time, nearly went bankrupt. So what did they do? Well, they had a great navy and they had a colony in India. So they harvested all this opium, put it on their gunboats and ran it down the Pearl and Yangtze rivers and addicted the Chinese to opium. The Chinese always loved opium. But they had not; they were not using it at this time until the British came in with massive amounts of it. Well, the the, the feudal warlords of China, you know, started a war against Great Britain, got their asses kicked, because the British had the, the gunpowder. I mean, they had the, the firepower. And out of that war, 1842, the British ended up with Hong Kong, the best harbor in all of Asia, and the Treaty of Nanjing that said they could trade wherever they want. So, as my publisher said, the government in China at the time, the emperor or whatever, wrote this note as at the beginning of my book saying, you're not satisfied with making all this money and destroying our people, but you want to continue making a profit off of us. Aren't you satisfied with the damage that you're doing? No. And the American company, Russell and Company from Yale University, jumped onto it and made massive fortunes. And even in New England, there was a serious opium and heroin problem. And as my book says, well, we've had these addiction problems going on for years and years and years, mostly with the CIA funding, you know, criminal syndicates and uh, people of that nature. So fentanyl is indeed, you know, the most serious weapon that China has to kill uh, democracy. And in Canada or here in Vancouver, I mean, there's bodies on the streets everywhere. I don't know what's happening in Australia, but fentanyl has killed more people than COVID and continues. I can't turn on the TV without someone saying there are 20 people a day dying from fentanyl. So the Chinese are laughing their heads off. They make the stuff, they manufacture it, they invent it, they send it to Mexico, the cartels send it up here. And never mind opium, fentanyl is killing you know, people in, 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 in our society in massive numbers, and not just fentanyl, drugs. So, you know, we ought to wake up and find out who did this. This is the hardest thing, isn't it? Because when it's a, a state-sanctioned spy movement, such as the three-letter agency, the CIA, doing it, it's virtually impossible to be able to get to any form of truth. And even if you do uncover it, there's a system there that works against any form of truth revealing into uh, into plain sight. So there is, uh, you know, obfuscating what happened. There's um, pulling strings so that it doesn't get investigated or it looks the other way. It, of course, is the subject of virtually every plot we watch in a, in a Hollywood movie or TV series today, just how it is that we see corrupt activities work simply by, say, an organisation like the FBI turning their, their, their head the exact opposite direction at the exact right time <clears> and need them to do it, which is eternally frustrating. But it is the work that you're doing, Michael, being able to uncover it, which means that more and more people, average people, can read about 
and understand just how this uh, system really and truly works. Um, one more question before we go to the break, and that's again bringing up the CIA. But uh, in the book, the CIA found the gold that the Japanese had stolen from China and other Asian countries before World War II and buried in caves in the Philippines, billions of dollars that, of course, the CIA go on to use to finance said black ops in Asia. This shows us that uh, the organisation, or at least parts of it, are nothing more than just a, a crime syndicate using it to fund more crime. It seems that if you can have a classified document, that is enough shade to do anything you want. Is it that brazen? Yes. More than that, General Yamashita was in charge of the Japanese army when the Americans dropped a, a couple of friendly uh, nuclear bombs on Japan and um, war came to an end, but the Japanese fully expected to win the war. They had spent 30 years pillaging Southeast Asia for money, for artwork, for gold, everything else, and no one knew where they had stashed it. So it turns out that Yamashita had buried it in the Philippines because he never expected to lose the Philippines. They never expected to lose the war. So everyone wants to know, well, where's all this money? And I don't know if it's billions or trillions. It was an enormous stash. And what happened was that unfortunately the Americans executed Yamashita. So he wouldn't talk. But someone in the CIA found out a few years later his driver and tortured him and he led them to the caves. And uh, there's a, an incredible book called um, Gold Warriors during the Cold War. Gold Warriors, you know, a very reputable journalist wrote this book saying General Yamashita's gold is buried in the Philippines and the CIA found it all, but they most certainly didn't tell anyone. They didn't even tell the White House. They had this enormous black ops uh, that they used all this money to do all of these things that are illegal, unethical, immoral, obscene, the things that they have done. And uh, no one ever asked any you know, questions, where did this money come from? But that's funded the CIA for years and years to do whatever the heck uh, they felt like doing. It, it beggars belief, doesn't it, to think that this is an organisation once again put in charge with defending the people of the US against foreign enemies, um, and yet here it is, it's just a, a business model for gangsters in suits, no less. We're going to take a break now, and we will be back with more with Michael McCarthy here on Weekends with Jason Olborn. You're watching and listening to TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. Just I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, 
Check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. 2. Think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighbourhood safer place. 3. It's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour is Michael McCarthy, author of the book, Follow the Money, How China Bought the World. Michael, if we move up into modern day, and of course, this is a very big election year. We've got elections uh, coming up in Russia, India, Canada, the United States, the UK, and Australia goes off early next year. It's quite extraordinary that there is going to be the possibility of so much change in what you're seeing. Now, how are you seeing this influence over China playing out? Do you feel um, like that the, the Taiwan issue is something that China will be pushed into or will do the pushing as perhaps the basis of a lot of debate over the next 12 months and then probably will juxtapose that against an economic position overall because at the end of the day, if people can't pay their rent, that's kind of when the revolution has to start. I went to Taiwan five times at the invitation of the Taiwan Tourism Bureau. I could go again anytime I want because of the articles that I've published in North America. Um, yeah, the book starts with Taiwan and the question is whether or not the CCP, the Communist Party, will invade and attack. And that is, you know, the beginning of World War III because America is uh, required to uh, defend Taiwan. It's a very serious question. I don't know whether or not the um, Communist Party will invade because it's a situation in great flux. You know, China itself is uh, experiencing a very serious economic downturn. So whether or not they will want to attack over the next little while. But what really concerns me um, talking about elections and going forward is this whole brand new journalistic thing called, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but fake news. Hmm. You know, all of a sudden being able to make up stuff 
that is completely garbage and being able to get it out there in the media and influence people is shocking to me as a journalist because you know, as a journalist, you have rules. You know, you, you get anything wrong, you're fired. You have to have attribution for what you're saying. It's, just, it's not an opinion. It has to be fact. And all of a sudden, at least I, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but in North America, the fake news people seem to be winning. Uh, that it's very difficult to find out um, the truth. But to my mind, in my book, and what I say in the book, is it all goes back to um, an economist called Milton Friedman, who, who basically said, um, you know, it's uh, the, the obligation of a corporation is not to its employees or to the community in which it does business. It's only to the investors who have the money to invest in you know, our product, which is how corporate executives have become obscenely rich. Well, truth and honesty does matter still a great deal. And going forward to all these um, elections that are coming up in the next little while, the people making stuff up are winning. They have a vast apparatus you know, that allows them to, to, to do this. And um, if we as citizens of the world and voters get sucked into this, then we're going to suffer the results um, just looking at, say, America, the bull in the China shop, Trump, his expertise is smashing everything up, breaking up stuff and leaving it there. Okay, thank you very much. Well, who's going to clean it up? And it's not just America. There's all sorts of far-right, um, strong political people around the world, strongmen, who are promising the same thing from Modi and Modi in India and Xi Jinping in uh, China. It goes all around the planet. Who cares about the truth? Who cares about honesty? Let's just shoot all the journalists, you know? So <clears throat> where do you get your information from? You know, I know where I got my information from, firsthand, on the spot, personal investigation. And when I go to China and people say, oh, did you know only 7% of the population are communists? Everyone else hates their guts. Oh, I didn't know that. But <clears throat> what power does anyone else have besides these strong men that have decided to break all the rules and do whatever the hell they want? This is the interesting part, isn't it? Who gets to um, call the shots and also have the privilege of being able to get away with uh, whatever it is that they want to do and, and, and never be held to account. I have a very big problem with the WHO, for example, and not wanting to deal with the origins of the virus. For example, they're hell-bent on telling us that it was a zoonotic in origin, that they uh, didn't have enough money or resources, and that they did a really good job in uh, during the pandemic and want more power to them. And I just find that that lacks the scrutiny at the same time. Uh, that we can even look at some sort of, you know, quasi-government global organisation just going down that pathway. And at the same time, as you said, more and more money being centralised, not just through government organisations, but through corporations. I think it was uh, Walmart has um, forced the closure of, what, tens if not hundreds of thousands of small businesses in the United States. And you look at a situation like that and you wonder just how it is that um, as, as the world gets more and more populated and uh, more and more information is shared, but power is centralised even as these corporations just get larger and larger. It's no different in the supermarket business here in Australia. We've sort of got two uh, major players there controlling uh, and, and generating tens of billions of dollars worth of profit. Uh, no real regard for uh, pricing, a little bit of lip service paid. And I look at it and I'm very, very disturbing. Um, some years ago, Michael, I met up with um, 
uh, a former Labor Party here in Australia, a speechwriter who once ran as a um, uh, as a candidate, was also a, a screenwriter, film director. His name was Bob Ellis. And uh, I, I managed to sit down and, uh, and, and over lunch sort of interviewed him and I asked him a couple of questions and he said to me, you know how I would fix this problem of too much power in business? I said, what's that? He said, I would limit all corporations or all businesses to just four outlets. And I and sort of just shook my head and my jaw dropped. And I thought that is someone who is writing speeches for people like in Australia, Gough Whitlam, Kevin Rudd, uh, Kim Beasley, all of whom were either Labor leaders, prime ministers, uh, so very powerful people. And that was the argument that he, he had come up with some 10 or 15 years ago, if not longer. I thought that was an impressive take on, on perhaps trying to work out a solution. But of course, that's a solution that would never, ever become a reality. What do you think of that comment? I really don't uh, understand or know enough about Australian politics to uh, respond to that. Fair, fair, fair enough. It's um, it's a case when I guess we look at it that his concern was that uh, again you had your major supermarket chains that were running the world, uh, or, or and making these supernormal profits, and at the same time introducing technology uh, so that you have self checkouts and various other different things. And it seems that the human being mm. in the West is too expensive, so technology replaces them. But over there in uh, in in Asia, particularly China, that the slave labour approach then. What happens, therefore? What do the people do when they can no longer derive an income for themselves? It seems that the only way, therefore, is to re-establish uh, some form of small business where people can just operate and that the big corporations have some of their power, I guess, dissipated or taken away. But again, it, it requires more controls. And it seems every time more control gets in, that becomes another difficult uh, scenario to, to um, legislate for. And of course, power and corruption gets in, in the way there. This is the disturbing part. Do you see solutions uh, perhaps going against what Friedman's comments were that the corporation's business is only therefore to the shareholder? Is there another way that this can become perhaps fairer uh, and simpler with, with perhaps less government um, uh, direction and control? Well, you and I are both um, journalists. And to my mind, one of the pillars of democracy has always been journalism, if not the most important. And journalism has been seriously damaged by digital media so that everybody is a, a reporter and a, a publisher right now. But I think that if we can find ways to rebuild journalism in, in a way that people like you and I and, and others can be connected and come out with what, what I like to call the truth instead of the, the nonsense that's being spewed forth by all these fake news uh, people. If we don't find a way to restore democracy, through tools like journalism. We are looking for a pretty sad uh, future where a very small number of people totally control uh, the world. You know, Nazi propagandist um, Joseph Goebbels said, if you repeat a lie long enough, it becomes the truth. And that's where we are right now. And it's up to certain people like yourself. And if I may hold this up one more time. Please do. Um, follow the money full of secrets, all of which are true over the course of time. You dig them up, you look them up, you corroborate them, and it's true. Um, we have to find a way to get back to that system that we had before, before it diminishes and falls away completely. Now, if we look at it, and, and this book largely covers obviously the relationship with China and spy agencies like the CIA, who holds, therefore, the CIA to account and is mainstream news on 
any side of the political divide, any political party, are they responsible for letting them have the long leash that they've been able to operate with for some 70 years? I don't think anybody controls the CIA. And, and small organizations and groups like Skull and Bones and other people that are fabulously rich have every intention of keeping things the way they've always done it and the business that they've, you know, always done it. So, you know, I'm by nature an optimist. I, I think that works, things work out in, in the long run, but right now we're in a bit of a dicey spot and uh, I really don't know where it's going to go uh, from here. It is concerning, isn't it, when you see that there are conflicts going on around the world, unlimited money virtually being thrown at them at the same time. And we sit here and we watch and see whether or not China will be forced to be the aggressor or somehow these, uh, be brought into a, a, another conflict there with Taiwan, which uh, effectively becomes the beginning of World War Three at that point, with the US potentially having to intervene in uh, multiple uh, conflicts at the same time. Uh, and and then, uh, then we see on the other side of the fence, we see the rise of this uh, BRICS group of nations arguing for a multipolar world where no one single country holds superpower status over the rest of us. And it seemed to be a way to, again, build economic growth in, in, in areas around the world that perhaps have struggled. Do you find any confidence that perhaps that um, this is all part of perhaps uh, the art of war, appear strong when you're weak, weak when you're strong, and work out a way to just for China to play this game, to just become this economic powerhouse and let the West um, defeat itself, so to speak. In many of the interviews I've done, I brought up the point that um, it's so complicated because the Chinese have been buying up American treasury bills since we're go. They started right long ago. So that allows them to keep their own currency low. So if America put lots of sanctions and boycotts. I've been boycotting Chinese uh, goods for years. Uh, it would hurt the Chinese. And then the Chinese would uh, hurt America. It's, it's tied together so tightly that you know, both sides need each other. And these major corporations that have invested all of this money are not going to sit there and let it all just disappear. So, yeah, it's extremely um, complicated in that somebody long ago on the far right of the American political spectrum decided that we would love to do business with the communists. And look at what that type of thinking has brought us to now. So, you know, they're locked and loaded over there. They're, they've got all the armaments. They've got the army. They've got whatever they want to do. But if they invade Taiwan or they do other things, to damage North American economy, you know, which they've been doing for years, there are repercussions to that. So I'm trying to estimate where it goes from here, I don't know. One of my favorite countries, and people ask me all the time, what's your favorite country in the world, is Taiwan. I've been there so many times. And I, I've been to China as well many times, and the two are complete opposites. Taiwan is modern, sophisticated, polite, intellectual, complete opposite. All those people who fled China in 1949 to go to Taiwan. Then you go across the border to China and it's like, ah, oh, you know, it's, um, it's a nasty place. So uh, what's going to play out? Well, maybe I should dig my nose in deeper and write another book. <laughs>
And, and this is it, isn't it? Uh, there you are, right at the cutting edge of history, writing perhaps the most important book of our time, Follow the Money, How China Bought the World. We've reached, unfortunately, the end of our time today, Michael, and I wanted to thank you for your time. And if you can just hold up one more time before we go, for those that would like to get hold of the book, Follow the Money by Michael McCarthy, here it is up on the screen for you now. Wonderful. Keep an eye out for that. You can find that on Amazon. You can also find it on trinday.com. I believe that's the website there if you wanted to check that out and get hold of it. We're going to take a break for news and when we come back, we'll have a whole lot more here. I'm glad that you've uh, been tuning in and listening to Michael's story. A whole lot more here watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT Radio.